0: Hello, Crime Lab. I'm your host, Jessica Garcia. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the very first episode of Crime Lab. I am so excited to be here. I've been wanting to do this for a while now. And finally, here I am bringing you true crime cases because I know there is a huge community of true crime fans out there. So I'm here for you. Let's hear about these cases, let's talk about these cases, let's keep these cases alive because they are real and very much still going on. Most, if not all cases that I will be covering are still going on and unsolved. So, let's get our first episode going. Today, I want to talk about the case of Patrick McNeil. When it comes to college, images of lecture halls and endless hours slaving away at a term paper will undoubtedly come to mind. But of course, there's also the frat parties and the all-night bench drinking sessions at the local bar with your friends. I mean, come on, practically every college kid has had this experience, and 21-year-old Patrick McNeil was no different. But unlike most other university students, his trip downtown to blow off steam took a tragic turn and ended with his lifeless body floating in New York City's East River. In 1997, Patrick was a student at Fordham University where he was taking up a degree in accounting. A handsome young man with dark hair and a shy smile, he was very much liked by his peers who considered him to be sort of a playboy because of his habit of being very meticulous about his physical appearance. Despite his major, Patrick had hoped to join the FBI after graduation. His professors believed that he was well-suited for the job. After all, he was an intelligent student who expertly balances academics with an active social life, and he even volunteered with a position at the Fordham Ambulance Corps. To add to that, he had a great work ethic. He had a part-time job as a driver for the campus shuttle, and he was an employee at Tops, the university's entertainment lounge. For many, these characteristics made Patrick the ideal candidate for a career in one of the nation's most elite agencies. He had a lot going on for himself. But even with this picture-perfect life, Patrick was, at the end of the day, still your run-of-the-mill college student which meant that he was also prone to drinking at local bars after an exhausting day of classes. At the time, students at Fordham University were frequent customers at the Dapper Dog, a bar located on Manhattan's Upper East Side that was known for its pretty relaxed ID checks and non-existing bartending regulations, if you know what I mean. These practices or lack thereof, should I say, made it the perfect spot for underage drinkers. It was at the Dapper Dog, where Patrick and his friends were found on February 16, 1997. One of their acquaintances was bartending that night, and he kept them piled with drinks throughout the entire time they were there. As the evening wore on, Patrick drank more and more until he was completely wasted, which led him spending the early morning hours of February 17th throwing up in the bar's bathroom. By this stage, Patrick was more than ready to call it quits. He returned to his group of friends and told them that he would be taking the subway back to the university because he had an early morning class and he needed to get back. One of his friends volunteered to go along with him, but she needed to use the bathroom first. And when she failed to meet up outside with him, he decided to head home alone. Now, according to the Observer, onlookers noticed him start to stumble up 2nd Avenue. There was a double parked van who followed him up the street. When he stopped, they stopped. And when he turned down East 90th Street, so did they this was the last time that anyone saw Patrick alive again. When Patrick failed to show up for his early morning classes the following day, his friends sounded the alarm. This was not like Patrick. At first, the police theorized that Patrick, in his drunken state, might have been involved in some sort of accident, or maybe he somehow lost his memory. Because of this, a search party was launched on February 26 focusing on scoring hospitals and soup kitchens all around New York City. Now, this is nine days after the last sighting of Patrick McNeil. More than 600 volunteers gathered to look for Patrick, hanging up thousands of flyers throughout the city. These were emblemized with a photo of Patrick and the word missing. These efforts, however, turned up nothing. But it wasn't long before Patrick finally turned up his body was found floating face up in New York City's East River in a spot situated more than 12 miles away from the dapper dog. During the autopsy, the medical examiner found that Patrick only had a moderate amount of alcohol in his blood, which meant that he was neither incapacitated nor completely wasted at the time of his death. More than that though, he had no broken bones, no head trauma, and no sign of other physical injuries as well as no traces of drugs in his system. All of this ruled out the possibility of foul play. But to add to the confusion, Patrick had been found face up, which more or less signified that he hadn't drowned because when somebody drowns, their body would be found face down. And despite this piece of evidence, Patrick's cause of death was ultimately ruled an accidental drowning. It was a suspicious case, to say the least. Patrick was a healthy, athletic man in his early 20s, yet he had been found dead in the river with nothing to indicate that it was his fault. These questionable circumstances shocked the American public, spurring several of the country's leading experts to take a closer look. One of them was a world-famous forensic pathologist named Dr. Cyril Wett who noted that fly larvae was found to have been laid in the corpse. He further claimed that this particular insect was commonly found indoors, which led him to theorize that Patrick's death was actually a homicide. More specifically, Dr. Webb believed that Patrick had been taken somewhere and held, perhaps for a few days or at least long enough for indoor flies to have laid eggs on his body. Then he was killed and dumped in the East River to make it seem as if he had accidentally drowned. To quote his interview with journalist Christy Peel, Dr. Wet said that, quote, "There's no way this man is accidentally gonna fall into a body of water and the fly larvae to have been laid in the groin area. It's an indoor fly, not an outdoor fly, so we have a body that was already dead before it was placed in the water. I would call it a homicide, yes. To add to that, the medical examiner's report also noted that the corpse's face and body bore black decomposition. However, Detective Kevin Gannon, the case lead investigator, claimed that this was actually charring, which indicated that Patrick's head, down to his mid-torso, was burnt before or after he died. He and his team also believed that ligature marks signified that Patrick had been bound and tied by the neck to a chair. Because of this, they posited that he had been restrained and tortured by his abductors before being murdered. In one instance, Detective Gannon declared that, quote, he was stopped, abducted, held for an extended period of time, murdered, and disposed of. They're psychopaths. They have no remorse. Quote, Like Dr. Wett, Detective Gannon was also skeptical of Patrick's official cause of death. His strong belief in homicide, rather than in an accidental drowning, was exasperated by the case of Larry Andrews, who disappeared a few months after Patrick vanished. In Larry's case, he had been drinking in New York City with his friends to ring in the New Year when he mysteriously disappeared at some point during the night. About six weeks later, his body was found floating in the Bay Ridge River in almost the exact same spot where Patrick's body had been found months earlier. Larry's cause of death was also ruled an accidental drowning. As with Patrick, this was a verdict that many deemed questionable. For instance... Larry's distraught father claimed that there was no reason why his son would walk all the way to the west side of the city when he and his friends had only planned a drink in the areas surrounding Times Square, where most of the holidays' festivities were concentrated. More importantly, a private investigator named Gil Elba, whom the Andrews family had hired, found that no one had a vendetta against Larry. This, along with the lack of a suspicious background, led him to determine that the claims of the family patriarch were true. Larry had seemingly disappeared off the face of the earth and resurfaced as a lifeless body in the waters of New York City. The similar circumstances surrounding Patrick and Larry's death led Detective Gannon to theorize that something more sinister was at hand. More than two decades have passed since both men were found floating in the waters of New York City. Detective Gannon himself has retired from the police force, yet he continues to work on the case motivated by his promise to Patrick's parents that he would find their son's killer. Since then, Detective Gannon has formed a team with fellow former New York Police Department's detective, Anthony Duarte, and professor of criminal justice, Lee Gilbertson. Together, the group has been tirelessly investigating the unexplainable deaths of Patrick and Larry, and the dozens of other young men who died and were found in a similar fashion. They're calling this an epidemic of college educated white men, all of whom were healthy and athletic, yet were found floating in local rivers and lakes after disappearing while on a night out with friends. Most of these cases were ruled an accidental drowning. But for Detective Gannon and his team, these deaths were far from accidental, rather, they believe that this epidemic is the work of a sinister organization that they dub the Smiley Face Killers, due to the happy face graffiti found at the sites of several of the alleged crime scenes. They theorized that the Smiley Face Killers targeted their victims before abducting and holding them for an extended period of time. Then the victim would be tortured and killed with their body dumped in a local river or lake to mask the murder. More than that, though, Detective Gannon and his team believe that the targets are college-age white young men who appear to be privileged, well-off, and essentially, the best of the best. Nobody knows for sure if the smiley-face killers exist. Despite their best efforts, Detective Gannon and his team have been unable to find solid evidence to tie the alleged crime scenes with a gang of domestic terrorists. But, If the smiley face killers do exist, then it means that they remain at large and at liberty to kill whenever and wherever.